for six years, my wife and I tried to have children for six years and we couldn't. And then we adopted Jude and we had Jude and then it was the three of us. And then, and then we had Owen a couple years later and then Blake was a surprise. And it's like, wow, now we're a family of five. And when you, I think you guys would agree with me, if you have kids, they're just, they're just the reality of there's a life pre-kids and there's life after kids. Like you had kids and now your world is different and, uh, you know, ethically, you can't go back, right? You can't go back to pre. Uh, you can't. Uh, I mean, you can, but you can't. But, but there's just that but moment where, whoo, now this is it. This is life. And, and this is how the scriptures speak of the Christian's reality. There are years of not knowing God, not loving God, not following God, but God revealed himself to you. But God is the defining moment of the Christian's life. But God. This is what this text hinges upon. It's also what your whole life and your history hinges upon. Is this moment right here, this but God. In, in 1857, Charles Spurgeon was going to uh, uh, preach at a prayer meeting at the Crystal Palace. I don't know enough. I didn't research enough about the Crystal Palace. I assume it's beautiful. Uh, I assume it's also large because there's about 24,000 people in attendance. And, uh, you know, he didn't have a lapel. So he goes in early. And what he does is he tests the acoustics, just something he would do when he would go to a new place and preach. And so he walked into this place during the middle of the day. No one's there. And, and his, if you've ever been around in the morning on Sundays for me, uh, I do some weird things to test our mic, say things. His, which I think I'm going to start doing now, is behold. <clears throat> he got it. Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And so he, he, he said that. Years later, he finds out that there's a man working in that space who heard Spurgeon just say, Behold, convicted of sin, he drops his, uh, lays down his tools and goes home. And in Spurgeon's autobiography, he finds about him and he says, Uh, I heard that this man found peace and life by beholding the Lamb of God. But God, it's the defining moment of the Christian's life. I mean, just working on a building, but God. Insecure, wild, confused, but God. Looking for a, sc- a spouse, but God. I mean, whatever it is, try, trying to climb the corporate ladder, getting stuck in another addiction or brokenness, but God, like this is, so where are you at? What, what has happened with you? We're just, you know where I'm going. You know this, most of you know these verses, right? So you can get joyful with me because this is the hinge that's changed everything in your life. Look at it, verse one of chapter two. If you need a Bible, there's some around you and the chairs underneath you, in front of you. Grab one, take it home with you if you need to. I want you to see this with me. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, just the first two verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. The Bible is honest and confrontational, right? Direct this morning. 
you were dead. This is your state. This is what's happened. And trespass, that's the acts of sin. But then sin is, is the nature. And so what he's saying is we were dead committing trespasses in a sinful state. Dead, dead, excluded from life, God, from God, cut off from eternal life, walking according to, according to the idols of the world, walking according to the power of the prince of the air. Apart from Jesus, we are spiritually dead, dead. We zombie walk in step with idols and counterfeit gods. That's what he said. We zombie walk in line with the devil and all his dark minions. By nature and by choice, we're dead. We're another person, another captive of sin, another zombie going with the flow of the world, another disobedient, rebellious, hateful child. You're dead. And then verse three, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Now, we're gonna get to verse eight, okay? I know you're all juiced, but that's not happening today. That's next week. And I say that because sometimes we're so juiced to get to verse eight, we don't really see what he's saying here. And what he's saying here is, you Gentiles were dead in your sins and trespasses. You, you thought it was just confrontational because... We don't like people telling us anything and definitely don't want to tell us that we're dead. But he's telling also, not just, he's telling Gentiles, you're dead. You were dead. But he also says, we too all. Do you know what the we there is? You know what he's doing? He's setting up for what he's going to do in the rest of chapter two, but we don't see it because we don't stop and see what he's saying. He said, you were dead. And so we were. We also were. We were children of wrath as well. He puts us on the same Page. I've said this before, and, and Alita laughed, liked it, so I'm going to say it again. Uh, you know those shirts and those posters that have the United States of America, right? And Texas is super large and wonderful. And people that moved here, we give it to you immediately so that you get instilled some pride. So, like, come on, you're here. New Jersey was terrible. I'm glad you're here. California, ugh. I'm, we're really glad you were here. The Midwest, don't even think about it, okay? You're in Texas, right? Texas. But what does the United States say? It doesn't say the states. It just says, ain't Texas. <laughs> like, I feel that, right? I'm like, yeah, who cares about the rest of the states? We'll secede if we need to, right? <laughs> this is turning into a rally. Okay, calm down. <laughs> you, guys, you guys got a little, yeah. Yeah, you guys thought I turned a little Ben Shapiro. You got to look a little too excited. Okay, calm down. <laughs> oh, I love joking with you guys. But what's happening here is... In this world, that's how the Jews were. It was the most inclusive derogatory remark in the world is Gentile, or more modernly, goy. It means one-tenth of the population Jews are the thing, and everyone else is ain't Jewish. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. You were dead, and so were we. You were a zombie, and we were just children deserving wrath. We're not close to God because of our ethnicity. We didn't get to God because of our family history. You were dead. We were dead. We were all in desperate need of someone rescuing us. 
of coming to us, of giving us life. And the good news about Christianity, the distinction, a distinction about Christianity is that the God of Christianity is the God of justice and love. So I want you to see the, 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 the breaking down already of the wall of the difference between us, right? Oh, we're different because our ethnicity, we're different because our past, we're different because our preferences. And Paul's saying, no, 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 we're, we're really not all that different. We're all broken, sinful, hateful, rebellious children that want our own thing and not God's thing. So we all need it. But then it goes into talking about wrath and just, I, I feel it sometimes in the room. Anytime we talk about God's wrath or justice or judgment, you're like, ah, uh, some of you just recoil. But in Christianity, God is both a God of love and of justice. He, he's not an angry, irritable justice junkie. And he's also not a flowery, soft lens, everything is cool man. That's not him. He's perfectly lovingly just, and he's perfectly justly loving. They just, there's, I know we can't understand it because, you know, even, even your attempts to try to do good, you emphasize one to the other or you, you fall and drift to one side, not the other. And, and God's just not that. He's not like us. Praise God. He's not like us. He, he's not like really about justice, but doesn't really care about anyone. Or he's like, oh, I really love people, but, uh, you know, let's just all like forget some of those wounds and the hurts and ignore that. And we're all cool, right? No. There's justice and there's love. And if you struggle with that, I just think about the whole world. I'll tell you just a little secret. One of the reasons we reread Spanish uh, as often as we can with the scripture reader is just another way to pull you outside of this myopic, everything is about me and my life and this church or whatever. That God is doing something amazing all over the world. And you know, when, when Christians tell people in different cultures to forgive their enemies. Do you know what they do? They're like, no, we don't forgive enemies. We retaliate. We exact justice. We take this into our hands. We don't turn the other cheek. And so they hear those things, and, and it rubs against their way of life. It rubs against their culture. It rubs against their values. But us, we're on the other side. Forgiving others or turning the other cheek isn't offensive to us. God's justice is offensive. Now think about those two cultures and answer this question. Should our culture's objections to Christianity or their objections win? Should our objections trump their objections or should their objections trump ours? Well, the truth is neither <laughs> because the gospel doesn't just work in one culture and, 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 and taps into one culture and enjoys that culture. Christianity is the transcultural truth of God. That means we should expect that it will contradict and offend every human culture at some point. It would have to offend you and correct your thinking at some place and just maybe, just maybe this is the place for some of us that needs to be corrected. That needs to be changed. You're not basically born good. And God is not an indifferent, distant grandfather. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You don't need education and therapy to be a better you. You 
The dead you needs to be made alive. We need to come to life, not a better dead person. We need a live person. And God is loving, active, merciful, and the just father, the father of the son, Jesus, is a God of love and justice. But then maybe you object or you have some questions like, how can God, a God of love, be also a God of wrath and anger? How can this happen? If he's loving and perfect, he should just forgive and accept everyone, right? It should be the flowery thing right here, like, yeah, everything's all good. No worries. He shouldn't get angry. But, but think about from the lesser to the greater. I'll argue that way. All loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath. Did you hear me? Not despite of your love, but because of your love, you are filled with wrath at times. If you love a person, if you really love a person and you see someone ruining them or harming them or they're doing it to themselves, you get angry because of your love for them. Becky Pippert, she's smarter than I. She wrote wrote it this way and hope has its reasons. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion. Do you hear that? Some of you guys still thinking that that God is like your dad who just exploded on you at times, got in your face uh, and, and yelled at you to be different. It's not explosive. God's wrath is a settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. He has righteous wrath because he has righteous love. Love for you, love for me, and things that are tearing us apart, or if we're tearing ourselves apart, there's anger because he's against that. He doesn't want that us to be torn or destroyed or ruined. So he's against that. He's going to come after that. He's going to work in that. But your second objection would be like, okay, that's all right. But, but wouldn't this make people violent? They just say that God is just and he has wrath and he executes judgment. Wouldn't that be to make people just in his image in a way that just make them violent all the time? Uh, Yale theologian Miroslav Volf, who's a Croatian who experienced firsthand the violence of the Balkans. Uh, Again, different culture sees it quite differently than us. He writes, if God were not angry at injustice and inception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of a liberal mind. He reasons that is the lack of belief in a God of vengeance that secretly nourishes violence. 
that the human impulse to make perpetrators pay is almost an overwhelming one. It cannot possibly overcome with platitudes like, now, don't you see that violence won't solve anything? <laughs> like, if you've seen your home burned down and your relatives killed and, and many other things, such talk is laughable, isn't it? Isn't it laughable? If you've really been run through the ringer of a real life in this real world, gritty, broken by the fall. Such talk is laughable, and it shows no real concern for justice. Yet victims of violence are drawn to go far beyond justice into the vengeance that says, you put out one of my eyes, so I'll put out both of yours. And so what, what do tribes that, that we've seen and what does our history tell us is that people, humans, get pulled into a endless cycle of vengeance and strikes and counter-strikes justified by the memory of terrible wrongs. So what Paul is saying here is that we are dead. We deserve justice and judgment. We were children of nature, but God, but God, but God is just and loving. That's who he is. So verse four, but God, the just one, right? Who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You were dead in your sins, in your trespasses, but God made you alive with Christ. He's rich in mercy. It's out of his great love that he makes us alive. Out of his compassion, God didn't look at you and say, hey, man, there's, you're lovely. I need you on my team. I got to pick you up. We were all the last pick dead. Can he get into the game? Because we're not on the court. And he came after us and made us alive. Like when we share the gospel, you know, we, we, we tell people, I said this last week, but we tell people to repent and believe, right? And it feels like, it's like, it's like Greg is drowning and it's like, I'm throwing a lifesaver at him. I'm saying, hey man, grab this lifesaver. Right? I'm telling him, hey, behold the lamb of God. That's what I'm saying. Like reach out, trust him, look to him. That's what it feels like. But what we see from God's point of view is that we weren't drowning and someone threw us a lifesaver. But that we were drowned. Dead, bloated, or at the bottom of the ocean. And Jesus didn't say, hey, check me out. Hey, reach out to me. Hey, consider this. Jesus left heaven, jumped in the ocean of this sin and darkness and broken world and swam all the way down to the bottom and scooped up your dead corpse, put you on his back and swam to the top, pulled you to the beach, breathed down. And just like he breathed life into all of creation, he then hovered over you and breathed life into your lungs and you were made alive and he said let's go you're alive now come with me 
That's what he did. This is the story of our life. This is the reality of the Christian's experience. Joel Beakey, I'll try to give you the imagery. He'll give you the definition, okay? He says, the supernatural rebirth or recreation of a sinner by God in which he applies the life of the risen Christ to produce conversion in the inner man for the renewal of God's image and definitive cleansing from my sin, all only because of his mercy and love. Richard Koken says, this isn't just resuscitation to life in this world, but resurrection to life in the kingdom of heaven. We are united with Christ in his resurrection and ascension. God somehow has seated us in the heavens with Jesus now. Meaning, Greg is sitting right there in that chair, but somehow he's also sitting with Christ in the heavens currently. Can, can I take that imagery, that reality, and then just pull in underneath it? Can you understand now what it means to be more than a conqueror? You might be getting beat down right now in life, but also right now you're seating in the heavens with Christ. Like victory is yours. Ascension is yours. Resurrection is yours. The Father is yours. Like So this is life, but God. We have this life. We're not dead, cut off from life, cut off from eternal life. No, we're alive with love and joy flowing through our veins, buoyant, joyful, loving, forever life. The Bible is confrontational and direct because the author of the Bible is also direct and confrontational. One time, Nicodemus, this religious leader, came to Jesus and had a lot of questions for him. And, and Jesus, uh, you know, didn't really answer his questions, you know? I think about that sometimes. I think about the questions that we're asking, the people around us are asking. I wonder if we're asking the right questions, you know? But even when we ask the wrong questions, Jesus shows up and, and he speaks to him and says, no, no, no. You just got it all mixed up, like all this religiosity and these laws. And it, this is what it comes down to. I assure you, John 3, 3, I assure you, Jesus says, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so the reality here is that some of you, this isn't your story. Meaning, there's no but God right now. You're either dead in your sins or you're alive with Christ, that's it. You're in the kingdom of darkness, we're in the kingdom of his beloved son. I, I remember George Carlin, uh, an old comic, maybe some of us will remember, uh, he, he argued... Uh, in America that, that choices are an illusion. He said, we, we all have the illusion of choice, but really everything gets boiled down to, to really just two options. We, we, we say we have choice, but in function, we like to boil things down to just two options, a Republican or Democrat. Like, well, what about independent? Well, it's all a waste of time, right? <laughs> like there's two options. That's what it feels like. There's Apple or Mac, got two options. 
And this or that, like just two options. We like to pull it down. I think it's because undergirding this whole reality is that there are two kingdoms. And you're a part of one or the other, and that's it. Like there's two types of people. There are two types of families you belong to. Either the devil is your dad, and you're walking in step with the rest of the world, following all the idols, dead in your sins, or you're alive with Christ. You must be born again. And so if you're dead, you, you got to be asking, well, well, Jesus, how can I be born again? How can I be made alive? Well, look back at chapter one, or just recall Charles Spurgeon. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. That's what it looks like to be born again. It's to look back and see, oh, Christ died for my sin in my place to pay the penalty for my, the judgment I deserved. Oh, and he, he forgave me through his death. Oh, then he rose to justify me. Oh, then he's made me uh, uh, one with him and he's also adopted me into his family. So now I, I have a father and I have the spirit who's with me and now I'm saved into a family. Yes, look to Jesus. Believe that he, the God-man, came to rescue you. You must be born again. But then for all of us, what I'm saying is, let's, let's, let's rejoice because this is our story. This is our history. And I say history, you know, it makes us think back but with the connotation. I'm just thinking, your, your forever has changed now. Your forever, your past has changed, right? But everything moving forward is different because but God, everything is different. Everything is different because this is what's happened to you. I, I love this story. I told you last week uh, in the baptism. I'll just tell you again for, for those who don't remember. I love this story. It's George Whitfield in the 1800s, nope, 1700s, and during the Great Awakening, he was preaching open air. I don't know if there's 24,000 people. It wasn't at the Crystal Palace. But, uh, but he's going to preach, and he preached thousands of sermons on John 3. A lot of, he's preaching open-air evangelistic sermons to people that don't know Jesus. So he preached a lot on John 3. One time he's preaching on John 3 that you must be born again. And there's a man coming to see him, heard about him, and he has rocks in his pockets ready to throw them at George Whitfield. Why? Well, because of what we're saying right now. No one likes to be told they're dead. No one likes to be told that they need something outside of themselves. No one likes to hear of grace when you're in a function of do to earn. I, I'm, I'm achieving things. I'm going to make something about me. I, I'm going to climb up this ladder. I'm going to get this status. I'm going to uh, get this title, right? Grace doesn't sound good if that's my life. And so there's a guy coming to, to stone George Whitfield to try to kill him while he's preaching. He doesn't. He comes up to Whitfield afterwards and he says this. He empties his pockets and said, I came to hear you with my pocket full of stones to break your head, but your sermon got the better of me and broke my heart. That's what God does. God gave this angry, hostile, violent man life through the gospel. Instead of making George Whitfield dead, God made this guy alive. Do you see what I'm saying? This is what the Lord does. And we can praise him that he melts the hearts of the hardest men and women and gives them new life. So as you think about this, I want to I just tell you three things. 
How, how does this work out in our life? How does this function? Or, or what should our re- response be to this? And first thing first is just coming back to chapter one. Because this is our reality, then praise the Father, Spirit, and Son. Praise him. <laughs> this should elicit gratitude in your heart, and that gratitude for what God's done is sufficient motivation for the rest of your life following Jesus. There's more motivations, <laughs> but that's ample, ample fuel to continue to sacrifice and lay down and, and give and, and to pour out for others. Why? Because but God. Because I'm alive now. <laughs> I have life. I can do things. I'm with the Lord. I'm united with Christ. I'm going to praise him. This is my life. This is my story. This is my future. This is my song. I'll praise the Lord all the day long. Right? Two, live in humble, gracious community. Not our works, nor our ethnicity got us here. That's what he's saying in chapter two. You are dead, we too also. It's not our family lineage that got us here. It's not our ethnicity that got us right with God. It's not our works and our performance and our doing whatever for God that got us. It's no, you are, you were dead. You are present and forever saved by grace. Well, what does that mean? That means you've entered into relationship with God because of his love for you, not because of your love for him, which means you've entered into this family, not because of our love for you, because God's love for you, and now we all have love for one another, so we're going to live in humble, gracious community because that's what we experience from him because superiority has no place here. Self-righteousness has no place here. We're a community of grace. We're not a community of performers who are looking down on others because we feel like we're doing better than them in this moment. That's not who we are. We're a community of grace. So self-righteous can go out the window. Uh, Superiority can go out the window. Partiality can go out the window. Racism can go out the window. Why? Because we were all on the even playing field of desperate need of God's grace and we've received it. So we're gracious people. That's the rest of chapter two, that's his argument. That if I hated you in the past, if I called you a dog, because I was Jewish and Gentile, or in this, I called you racial slurs, now we're one in Christ. His grace is the thing that also changed my heart. And number three, be patient. Be patient and gentle with non-Christians. Be patient and gentle with non-Christians. They are dead, deceived, and dying. So at the least, can we uh, no longer be surprised by their death, their deception, and their dying? Oh, no, they have a trans ideology. Of course they do. Of course they do. Oh, they're wiling out and voting this way, or they're doing this, or they're treating their kids like this, or they say this. Yes, of course. Right? They're dead. They're dead. They have no understanding of life. They have not... (laughs) 
seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. So they're dead in their sins and trespasses. They're, they're following the devil and his minions. They're following all the, the idols of this world. So we should no longer be surprised and go quick to uh, criticality and, and putting them down or derogatory remarks because they're dead. That's what dead people do. Stop criticizing them and just tell them that they must be born again. Like, why are, we, why are we so surprised by this? We Christians are typically on the margins throughout church history being ridiculed and mocked, and it's okay. We don't have to win the culture to like us. We don't. Most often, dead people hate living people. Jesus said it more elegant. And he said, if they hated me, they're also going to hate you. So, so no longer being surprised by their actions, their attitudes, their thoughts, their beliefs. And be patient with them. And gentle with them. Do you remember how obnoxious and annoying and ignorant and rebellious and hateful you were? Now, if you became a Christian when you were a kid, maybe young, praise God. But there are some of us in the room that feel like the people in Ephesus. We were living wild lives. And then someone showed up and told us about Jesus. And someone told us, you must be born again. And we can feel that weight of this is what you were, but this is what God has done for you. And so we're going to be patient and gentle with them. This is exactly what Paul says in Titus 3, and I'll, I'll finish with this. It, this is what he's communicating, to be patient and gentle. He says, to slander no one, to, to speak evil of no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all Christians. You guys are nice. <laughs> I know he's going to correct it. We'll just sit quietly. You guys are so nice. <laughs> no. Always showing gentleness to all people, for we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another, but God. The only thing that's different between us and them is that God has miraculously collided his grace with our heart. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, but God. So we're going to praise him. We're going to be gracious with one another, and we're going to be gentle and patient with non-Christians. Why? Because this is our reality. This is our story all the day long. All the day long, we're going to sing this and praise him and rejoice in him. Let's pray. Father, we do. We praise you. We thank you. We rejoice with trembling that you are holy, separate from us, transcendent, but also near and close with us, personal, loving, here, good to us, loving, kind. Throwing your billions of riches of grace our direction all the time, bailing us out, forgiving us, 
but you're good. In Christ's name.